Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Hello, Shiloh. We are doing Ether 1 through 5 today. So this is a a change of story in the Book of Mormon. We get sort of a, what's this, like almost a third-hand account here. We have Ether's abridgment, and he puts it on the 24 plates, and then Moroni gets it, and Moroni, it gets translated by Mosiah, and then Moroni abridges King Mosiah's translation of Ether's abridgment of the record. <laughs> <laughs> is that does that sound right? <laughs> it's pretty close. And even Moroni is saying that it's uh, it's all by his memory. He's like, I've, I've done this according to the best of my memory. So it's almost as if you know, when we get to it, I'll I'll see what you have to think about it. But it's almost as if Moroni is telling us that he doesn't probably have direct access to what he's talking about, but he's memorized a lot of it and he's putting it down there. So. It'll be interesting to see what he has to say. So the Book of Ether has always been interesting to me just the way it's put together because it's a history of a people that actually their history ends up being a longer chronologically than the people of Nephi, yet we have so little of it. And then littered throughout Ether, even in chunks, there's all this commentary by Moroni in in which the actual record of the Jaredites is only maybe half of the Book of Ether, and the rest is commentary and discussion by Moroni <laughs> about what's what's happening. So, um, you know, not only do we get uh, the abridged record, you know, that Ether seems a short book, but it it's really even more condensed than it appears at first once you get into it. Moroni says here in verse 1, And now I, Moroni, proceed to give an account of those ancient inhabitants who were destroyed by the hand of the Lord upon the face of this north country. As soon as I heard this verse, this phrase stood out to me, destroyed by the hand of the Lord. Now, we talked about this a little bit last time. But what what kind of stood out to me about it is if you go to chapter 8, Ether chapter 8, and you look at verse 21, he says... He's talking about the secret combinations, and he says, And they have caused the destruction of this people of whom I am now speaking, and also the destruction of the people of Nephi. So you're kind of left to ask, well, Moroni, which was it? Was it, the, was it the evil, wicked combinations that did this, or the Lord? Because those are definitely not the same thing, right? So I think this kind of goes back to our discussion about this phrase being almost an idiomatic expression, or at least along the lines of the Nephite tradition of when a people are destroyed, you know, it's the judgments of the Lord that have have brought it about, you know, uh, not the literal hand of the Lord that's doing it, but basically just this is reality, consequences of of their choices and so forth. So anyway, that that first verse always stood out to me. But here we're going to get this discussion of uh, Moroni where he starts into this record and uh, Shiloh, you and I were talking beforehand how whenever you're 
basically establishing um, a founding myth of a nation, there's there's several things that are involved in that. And chapter one really brings all of those things out. I'll let you talk about them because you're more familiar with with that concept. Um, but it's really interesting to find all of those in chapter one, and it goes right along with that national myth foundation. We get the story of the the Jaredites leaving the tower, traveling in the wilderness. This the story becomes almost allegorical their their journey. So it's very interesting, not just in chapter two, but even moving into chapter three, there's a lot of symbolism there in this whole story um, about what's happening with this people compared to either plan of salvation narratives or Christian narratives or you know just just all kinds of different all kinds of different things that could be pulled through there. We have this iconic chapter three of Ether where the brother of Jared sees Christ and the discussion they have is really uh, really brings out a lot of themes that are particular to Mormon theology. But then there's also a lot of things in there that kind of hint at some more uh, interesting connections between what's happening here and what uh, we've already been discussing earlier in the Book of Mormon. Um, moving into chapter four, basically we get all of Moroni's commentary on what just happened. Or what's really interesting about it is Moroni seems to be commenting on things that we don't have. <laughs> so he tells us, and there's just all this really other cool stuff. And you guys, it's so awesome. And it's really cool. And you're going to love it whenever you get to read it. And just believe me. And it's amazing. <laughs> and then he goes to comment on it. It's like, okay, thanks more, Moroni. And then ends up with this chapter five, which is basically a discussion about <clears throat> how the Book of Mormon is going to be brought about, the three witnesses, and so forth. So um, anyway, going back to chapter one, Shiloh, why don't you discuss a little bit about this founding myth um, idea that, that goes on in Yeah, here. what really stood out to me is it's really cool because the Old Testament, it came about because I was studying the Old Testament and reading some scholarly books on, on the origins of the New Testament and of how they writ, wrote and why they wrote it. And come to find out the Old Testament is very much a political document. It was written in kind of in the form that we have it really in their captivity in Babylon. And so it's very political. It's used as a political document, but it's also used as kind of their tie back to their ancient roots, right? And part of all of these ancient Semitic texts, you know, if we're going like to the Epic of Gilgamesh, or if we're going to the Hebrew Bible or whatever they are, they always start with this origin myth. And the origin myth always starts in the creation of the universe. You know, so it's, <laughs> it's like, you know, our, let's start the history of our nation. Okay, when the earth was created, you're right. And so you like, you go way far back yeah. into like the beginning of time. And the whole point here is to show that almost like the whole reason why the earth and the universe and all things were created kind of funnels down to your particular time your day your age. yeah your nation is is the culmination of all of this history and 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 god has faded things such that your nation shall exist at this time in space yeah you know ordained by god yeah, yeah. exactly so it's it's the united states is no different and every country mm -hmm. has their origin myth now most westernized countries today we don't go back to the creation of the earth as it were but we do tap into certain religious stories 
that do have their own origin story. So we kind of borrow from religion right now in the Western civilization where we really kind of plug into ancient religions and, and their own stories. But we show that God is very much favoring our country. And there's all these narratives about our country. And I, I love this one book. I know we've talked about it in previous podcasts where there's an author goes through some of the the Christian pastors in Nazi Germany and he took out any reference to Germany or anything, any reference there. Right. And then he took out these sermons from American ministers and he took out any reference to America and he like compares them one by side by side. And the whole challenge is try to guess which country they came from. Right. And the whole point is, is that they're indiscernible. You can't tell the difference between them. The people over in Germany were talking about how God favored their country, that they were a covenant land, that God had favored their people, that they were the manifestation of God's holy order, etc. Just like the Christian evangelicals were saying it over here. And so they use the same narratives, the same truths, the same. And so people over here would be like, well, they're children of the devil and they're liars. And, and they're saying the same thing about us. And, and that's just the way it works. And so we always do this. This is just the way things go. Nations will always co-opt religion. It's just the way it goes. And we either have to accept that and go along with it and kind of have two different religions that we deal with, with our the Sunday religion, what I've called our Sunday religion, and then kind of our national religion that we deal with with civil our civil religion, right? And in these particular ways, they don't have that distinction. They don't have a distinction between a civil religion or a civic religion. It's or your Sunday religion or your civic, it's all one thing. And so that's how this goes here. So we learn in Ether 1, in verse 3 through 5, that there is a record here in these plates of the creation. It says, And I suppose that the first part of this record, which speaks concerning the creation of the world and also of Adam and an account from that time even down to the great tower and whose whatsoever things transpired among the children of men until that time is had among the Jews. Therefore I do not write those things which transpired from the days of Adam until that time, but they are had upon the plates, and whosoever findeth them, the same will have power that he may get the full account. But behold, I will give I will not give the full account, but a part of the account I give from the tower down until they were destroyed. Now, another one of the things that countries do when they establish their national narratives is they have to have a language to be able to establish that narrative by. And it's usually a narrative that's unique to that people, or at least a, a way, a dialect or something that differentiates them from, from their parent country where that may have been. Just like America did that with England. You know, we very much ended up with our version of English and the, the Queen's English, and we did what we could to change that and to, and to come up with a different accent and in different words. So this is very normal. This is what nations in history do all the time. And this story is really no different. We have the confounding of the language and the brother of the Jared comes to his brother. We never really know his name in the scripture. Um, you know, we have the famous Mahanrai Mori Inkimer folklore, folklore right? Yeah. So whether it is or it isn't, the, the whole concept here is, is that we have this seeming high priest, this, this seeming person who's high in order, that Jared realizes that his brother is someone who is higher above him, who can petition God for him. So the brother of Jared is probably someone in some kind of religious authority or seen in a religious authority who petitions God for the group. And because I've always wondered, like, why isn't Jared going to God? Well, the brother of Jared must represent something in their family nucleus that he's something 
elevated from from where they are so that he's someone who can more adequately reach the heavens than possibly they can. So at least they see him in some kind of higher religious order way, some, somehow like a high priest. But yeah, it, it, the, the language is very important to establishing a national identity. And so here we get in the very first page, we have not only the story of the creation of the earth, but we now have a genealogy from all of the the men from the very beginning all the way down to the end, right? And so the genealogy is there, the language is there, and then as we get into the second page of chapter one, all of a sudden we're now talking about a choice land, and that will follow over into chapter two. And when we're talking about not not just any land, because they come into like lands that were beautiful and, and amazing, but God's like, no, 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 I've really got something in store for you, something really, really good. And so, and so this is really trying to build up and to show that the lands that God has given are, if if you rely upon God, then he gives you bounteous lands and, and he drives you forth and he will direct everything for you so that you obtain everything that you want, even more so than you can even possibly imagine, is very much the kind of the theme of these chapters and moving forward from kind of an elemental, an elementalism with the creation into this the state of being where their their origin history and where they're located at, and, and we don't know exactly where they're located at. I guess in Babylon or near Babylon, you know, Babylon or wherever they their origin is. Hugh Nibley tends to think that's their traditional that's the traditional location, but we um, don't know. Yeah, again, Tower of Babel stuff is not right. The, there's not good archaeology. We don't that. know. We just don't know. Um, but at least we have here. Hugh Nibley thinks that they went across Asia. That's his guess. I offer mm-hmm. no guess. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm not a geography. <laughs> I, I don't I don't care to get into geography, and I know a lot of people do. Um, and I know there's value there. It's just not something that I personally dabble in. So, well, it fits the narrative here, talking about how they traveled and all the time they took traveling and going over different bodies of water and stuff. You know, it would it, Asia. And the central steppe of Asia and, and all that land is really the only area that fits that type of narrative and story of them traveling that far across land. But um, yeah. I, sure. <laughs> don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Nibley's pretty convincing about how he discusses it and everything and brings in all kinds of accounts. It's very fascinating, his discussion of this. But um, um, yeah, we don't necessarily have to get into it. I I thought, you know, in terms of the founding myth and narrative, um you know, there's a few things that are said in here. It says that the brother of Jared was highly favored of the Lord. You know, this kind of adds to that uh, narrative that this people is is chosen of God, right? And then over here, we have these very strong words in verse 43, and there shall be none greater than the nation which I will raise up unto me of thy seed upon all the face of the earth. You know, yeah, that's, you don't get stronger words than that, right? About <laughs> the country. Um, with the founding narrative, we have this whole genealogy of of the kings, so to speak, the leaders of the people. So yeah, it all fits in really well with with this type of thing. Yeah, I mean that's like better than Abraham kind of stuff, right? So we have this, yeah. you know, these kinds of like comparisons between people of I will bless thee and thy seed, and there'll be none that'll ever be better. And and these kinds of things really affect this uh, this kind of thinking and and these kinds of people and in what they're looking for and how they're building and growing. You know, it's so much different nowadays. Um, and sometimes it's hard to really connect with a lot of like you know we talked about this before about their connection to the land 
and about how they were yeah. really concerned about having land that they would have for their inheritance. And I live in Bakersfield, California, and I have a home here, and uh, <laughs> that that's awesome. But I'm I'm not looking for having generations upon generations upon generations migrate here to my little parcel of suburbia. That's that's just not the way that yeah. that I think about the things. cultural priorities now are are definitely different than they were back yeah, then. Yeah, indeed. So a lot of these things we have to try to get back into their ways of thinking and and trying to figure out what they were getting into. And I think that's where chapter two for me was really, it, I, I read it differently than I've ever read it before. And, and you and I were talking about how this was very allegorical and it was, you know, very metaphorical and how they were using their own story. But I was like looking beyond their story into almost a, a heightened version of like the journey of man in general. It was, it was kind of interesting because we have in verse uh, chapter two, Chapter two, verse one, it talks about their migration and they migrated from, from one land to another. We have two verses from two to three that talk about food and about how they took with them swarms of bees and, and they carry with them Deseret. That's where we get the word Deseret from and, and being interpreted honeybee, we learn is the Adamic language for honeybee. Um, and then, and then when, oh, is that what Nibley says? I think that's what, isn't that what, uh, is that Joseph Smith, Brigham Young? Uh, you know, Deseret is. I'd have to look up commentary on that. I don't. I don't remember that being said that way. But yeah, the Deseret's the uh, the the uh, the pure tongue, the pure language for honeybee. So then we have here okay. in uh, in verse four, and it came to pass that when they had come down to the valley of Nimrod, the Lord came down and talked with the brother of Jared, and he was in a cloud, and the brother of Jared saw him not. And I love this imagery of God being revealed. And of God revealing himself, but he's not really revealing him his whole, whole self. Here we have a cloud, a vapor, a, a, a something that is just out here that's almost formless that, you know, we're trying to make sense out of. And the symbolism here for me is really powerful because vapor, you know, in the creation story, meaning chaos, it's it's almost like this, we're following God, but it's always in like this we take we take steps into the darkness and there's this this vapor that's there this chaos that's in our lives and we and we can't make a lot of sense out of it but yet we're following this source that we we just feel drawn to and so it's that faith that like reaches into our soul and pulls us and it's like I can't understand what's going on I can't really put words to why I'm feeling this but I just I need to go and you know, this reminds me a lot of conversion stories from the, a lot of the early saints when the missionaries would come and they would just feel like there's just something in me. And I've often often wondered, like, why are why are you leaving your home in Europe where you have family and you have community and everything? And it's just some people would just leave their entire family and community just to go to all the way across the ocean, all the way across the North American continent into Salt Lake to people you don't even know on this idea that some guy randomly showed up on your door and started talking to you about Zion. Like, like what is that? What, what motivates you to do that? Right. <laughs> but it's this, it's like this hand reaches into your heart and it's just, it, it like, it just like pulls and, and gently pulls and persuades. And it's this moving forward. And so I love this imagery of, of this cloud and in this, uh, and then it says that, and it came to pass that the, com- that the Lord commanded and they should go forth into the wilderness. And I'm like, you know, this, this, this chaos, it calls us forth into the wilderness. And the wilderness is a place where man is not. 
you know, we talk about the Beatitudes all the time about losing our identities to, you know, our, our earthly identities and at least finding value and a lot of meaning in our earthly identities, at least, and to, to unplug from everything so that we just let it go and we surrender everything. And part of that, I think that imagery of going into the wilderness is a lot like that because we are, we are going into these places in our, in our discipleship and in our relationships with God where sometimes we look sight to, you know, next, you know, next to us, to others, and we have no context to where we're at. And all we can do is kind of follow this cloud in front of us that's, we don't, we're, we can't really can't even describe what it is anymore either too. So it's, this is really weird imagery in these two verses for me of following this formless cloud and being brought into the wilderness. I, just that imagery in, in our discipleship and especially with, you know, experiences I've had in the last several years of, of learning to see God in a different way where I've looked around, I'm like, man, is there, is there anyone else who's having this same kind of experience and come to find out there are, but I had to start talking about it. And then it, it, you start to see that people are having these same kind of experiences and we're struggling to put words to what we're experiencing. And then, uh, it's it just sometimes we can't even put words to it, but we try to like stumble through it. And it's, I'm like, it's kind of like this. And somebody else will be like, yeah, and it's a call out kind of like this. And I'm like, yeah, it's like that. Mm-hmm. And so we get into this kind of, it's like we're talking around it very much just like talking like what salt tastes like. I'm like, it, it, it tastes salty. And people are like, yeah, it tastes salty. Well, I mean, that's that's where this symbolism of the cloud really comes in. You know, this is this this whole concept of of their God at this point being represented by a cloud and them going into the wilderness is extremely ancient and profound. Um, there's actually a whole lot more that we can pull into the context of this in terms of the Tower of Babel because the story of the Tower of Babel was that it was being built by Nimrod. And um, and so we come into this this valley of Nimrod. So there's this discussion of that, this being brought up. But Nimrod, right, was building the temple. And, and Nibley gets into this. Nimrod was building uh, his um, his temple. And this temple was sort of a counterfeit of the real temple or the priesthood. And so Nimrod claimed that earthly state authority versus the true priesthood authority. And... So when they were building the Tower of Babel, they were making it out of bricks, which are are man-made, um, completely uniform. Every single one is identical, and they stack these up and make something. Whereas when Abraham and, and I mean, even before and Adam were commanded to build altars, those were you know the proto-temples, so to speak, they were commanded to build them out of stones. And these stones are made by God. Every single one is unique. There's not uniformity to them, um, and so so then you had Nimrod come along and build this this temple out of uh, bricks, this Tower of Babel, and then we have the whole discussion of the confounding of the languages, which is an an hour or two long discussion <laughs> as well, um, <laughs> and then you get this people who's who's brought out from this this state of of what was complete order um, and basically tyranny by Nimrod because of the the state authority he had proclaimed and then decided to build this temple. And then everything had descended into chaos because of how tyrannical it was. And you have this people who preserved their tiny bit of order, 
right? Their language. And they are brought out of this. And what happens? They follow a nebulous, so bringing in the Latin term for cloud, they follow a nebulous God that is undefined. He's there. We know it's something, but we can't draw a box around it yet. It's just this thing that we can only loosely defined, define. So it's a cloud. And so I, that imagery is so fascinating to me. And then what do they do? They leave this um, this chaotic evil state and they go into what we call the chaotic good or the wilderness, which is the chaos created by God. Um, and what are they doing? You know, they're traveling to a new land and God is going to bring a good order, make a good order people out of them. So the the symbolism of this whole story is is just it's actually very ancient and profound uh, in 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 all kinds of founding national myths. It fits in so perfectly, and the fact that Joseph Smith could even come up with something like this is is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's really cool, and it follows so well the main plot points of the Exodus, you know, like you know, like Moses's Exodus, right? Exactly. So that was the next point I was going to make because they you know they're traveling. They have a cloud by day, pillar by night, that God goes before them in the cloud. Yeah. I mean, isn't isn't that great? I mean, it really does add a lot of flavor to even what Moses was going through because you have the you have the children of Israel who've been for four hundred years in Egypt and they worship their God and they keep their God in their you know in their remembrance sometimes by just name only. I mean, they don't know what kind of God they're worshiping. That's a whole reason why they built the golden calf. That it wasn't a pagan false god. They were building a golden calf as a Yahweh symbol, right? So. It's this whole... Th they were still trying to figure it out. They were still out. trying to yeah. figure it out, right? And so they still have this cloud by day, this, we're following this, I, I, I don't know what, but it's our God, and we're, we're going to do our best from following it. And the whole way, God is showing them, yes, I, I will do everything for you. I will, I will let you, I will part the water and let you walk through on dry ground kind of thing for you. And it, we see a lot of that here with the brother of Jared as well, because... And his people, and I, and you know, going back to the whole language thing, you're right. We can spend hours talking about language and the power of language, um, in how that, you know, we are such slaves to it. I, oh, I'm going to it. I'm going to do it. So we are such slaves to language <laughs> because it's it's at once our most valued friend in how to communicate everything. It, I mean, language is that thing by which we can express love, by which we can express emotion, by which we can express everything, right? It's it's the mode by which we, we, we communicate and we have symbols we've attached sounds to that we've attached meanings to and the complexity of how language does it. But language also is kind of a, an invisible jail cell that we often don't even understand because... Language can often inhibit our way of being able to see things outside of language. Because if we don't have a word for it, sometimes it goes unaddressed. There's, I can't tell you how many times when I've had emotions or I've had experiences or I've had life events happen where I have no word to be able to describe what happened. And the minute I have a word, I'm like, that's the word for that. And now I have a word to communicate. It's it's like I'm I'm let out of a out of jail, where I now have this word. I have something to communicate, 
what this experience is and I can articulate it. Right. But also language itself will also put us in a box for, uh, for as glorious as language is when we start to realize that language can sometimes start to prohibit our ability of growing and seeing beyond what language provides uh, that's where things get really difficult. And so when we start to see why the brother of Jared was so desirous to keep his language and the power of his language, you know, I, I, when I taught seminary, I, I taught it in, uh, in this way, because I had a few students there that w- were learning calculus and I, I'm not a big calculus person. I, uh, it's not my forte, but calculus, I have studied enough through philosophy, you know, with Newton and Leibniz and studying the those philosophers and physicists, that calculus is a language. Math is a language. It has its own grammar. It has its own syntax. It has its own um, rules for its grammar. Everything. Math has its is, is in itself a formal language. And with calculus, you can use that language to be able to perceive and to quantify things that have been. And because of the power of that language and through observation, we can actually use that to be prophetic. We can actually predict future events by the power of that language alone. Now, that language does not express love, right? Calculus doesn't have the ability of expressing love. It doesn't have the to be able to watch and to hold a newborn for the first moment and, and to be a parent for that first time and hold that newborn in, our, in your arms and that emotion and that experience that language itself is almost powerless. Calculus doesn't even begin to even comprehend how to describe that, right. but it can predict things. It, it, it's a predictive language if used correctly, if used in certain ways. And so can we imagine a divine language that has married like calculus with English? to where the language itself is power enough, powerful enough to be predictive. And I've thought about that a lot. So, mm-hmm. so we have language that we have enough evidences for in certain aspects of our life to see the power of how language can really affect the way that we come to our lives. And, and so when I see the brother of Jared here, I, I can fully well understand why he wants to keep that language. If he sees how other languages are have being polluted and they're losing their meanings and, and no one can agree on terms, no one can agree on words. Um, yeah, it, it becomes one of those really fascinating discussions. Well, and, and I'm sure we'll bring this up again when we get to either chapter 12, because Moroni gets into this and he says that the brother of Jared's language um, written was really powerful, and he was able to express things that were were way more powerful than than Moroni can express when he's writing and and even speaking. And so, um, I think that's really good context uh, for some of the things that we see in chapter two. Um, in particular, uh, I'm, this phrase that I see in verse eight that's repeated multiple times here. He says, "And he had sworn in his wrath unto the brother of Jared that whoso should possess this land of promise." from that time henceforth and forever should serve him, the true and only God, or they should be swept off when the fullness of his wrath should come upon them. I see this as a failing in language to describe really what's happening in this situation. Um, And so we have this word wrath, which when you look it up, talks about like 
you know, just ridiculous types of anger or indignation, but, you know, sort of in a divine sense. Well, what does that mean? Well, you only know what it means if you understand who God is. And then all of a sudden this, this mer- this um, uh, proximity to the human emotion of anger um, no longer really makes any sense. And wrath is something different. It's not anger because it's something that happens in a divine sense. And so here we have a failing of this language. Um, I know you had talked about a book you had read that you know discussed this concept of the, of the wrath of God. Um, I'd be interested to read that because I, I kind of want to get more into some of the particulars of of the context of of the use of this word and translation and so forth. But I think it's just an example of of what you're talking about with language, where we are limited by the the context and and vocabulary and and history even of our language to express things in a certain way and. We're even with scripture, we're only going to be able to convey a nebulous, right? Getting back to this cloud idea of who God is. And ultimately, we're going to have to have this experience that the brother of Jared himself has. And we're going to have to go to the Lord to learn who he actually is defined rather than just this cloud that we learn about in the scriptures, so to speak. Yeah, that book that you're talking about is by Bradley Jersak and is called A More Christ Like God. Mm-hmm. A more beautiful gospel, and it really is. It's a fantastic book. Uh, it goes through very simply, and it talks a lot. It has a whole section on the wrath of God, and then he has another section called "Derathing God." So he's he's like, okay, let's mm-hmm. talk about what this is, and then let's actually like deconstruct what we think we know about it from con- from our own context. And that's one of the things that we really struggle with. And I was even having a social media Facebook. I don't want to call it a debate, but a co- co- really hot conversation. I, was, was, I don't know. Um, but, you know, we're talking about scriptural interpretation and a lot of people go back to their interpretation of scriptures like this is who God is. It says it right here in the scriptures. And that that's really, really hard for that was really hard for me when I started first started coming to seeing God in a new way. Um, even when we started recording these, Ben, and I, I can't tell you how appreciative I am of you and of everything that you've brought here with the podcast to, to really help me see, cause there was, there's so many times with these scriptures, even in the book of Mormon, where I'm like, man, that, that God is just, he's like angry all that the time. describe the God I know. Yeah. It's yeah. like all, the, the God I'm experiencing and the one that I, that I, I'm seeing in the Sermon on the Mount is not here on the page. And I'm just having a really hard time connecting here because there's such a strong disconnect and you know a lot of things that you've said and in and going back over and reapproaching the text has really helped me to to just be at complete peace with the text because now it's like oh i see i see this kind loving compassionate universally loving unconditional god and i know that term unconditional right now is a really hot button topic that a lot of people are really reject. I know what President Nelson has said about it. I also know how a lot of people are misinterpreting and mis- really misconstruing what President Nelson said about it um, you know, several years when he was apostle. And we just have this new way of looking at God. And, and I grant that there's a lot of people who are using this concept of a universally loving God and, and a, of a compassionate God to really preach this doctrine of like, it doesn't matter what you do. You just, just, just go out and do whatever you want to do and, and kind of promoting a very libertine lifestyle. 
Um, and right. so I permissive, yeah, and I I get that, but that's not it at all, because when we truly truly tap into the love of God, not just rationally. And that's where I think so many of these conversations do so many people a disservice. If we don't truly tap into the love of God and we use the love of God as as a dismissive tool in our lives to just live whatever life we want to live, that's not the point. Because when we truly tap into the wondrous awe and love of God, then at that point, just being there with God and, and, you know, President Benson, and I'm going to butcher this because I haven't pulled the quote up in so long, but he said something and it's pretty close, but he says, when obedience ceases to be tiresome or a burden and it becomes the whole thing by which we are enacted by and it becomes a joy in that point, in that moment, God endows, endows us with power. And that's really what we're talking about here is that there's a lot of times when we want to be obedient to the rule as a checklist, be obedient, be obedient, be obedient, and just to check it, list it off. And then we have this expectation that God's going to bless us. And so we live in this transactional checklist relationship with God that the more we do, the more he's going to bless us and that we can kind of do our way into his good graces. And that's not it either. And a lot of people want to say that that way of being and that way of culture doesn't exist in Mormon culture, but it really does. I mean, th- that that is mm-hmm. so heavily, heavily indoctrinated into our whole culture and into a lot of the ways that we interpret the, the words of the prophets from the top down. It's It's so pervasive in our culture. And that's where we get into discussions where we try to lambaste our our, Christ, our fellow Christians by when they start talking about grace. Because in a lot of ways, we straw man and red herring our fellow Christians right. when they're talking about grace. Because we, as a church culture, this is one of those really, really, really important doctrines that we have really, really no idea what we're talking about. And I'm talking about as a culture in general, because we so radically, I don't even know what the appropriate word is, because the word I want to use, I shouldn't use, but we so radically pollute (laughs) this word, um, grace, and we, oh man, it's like we completely zap our ability of connecting with God and the awe of God in doing so. But coming back around to what we're talking about here, I see the brother of Jared, something you said really kind of got me going on it because the brother brother of Jared really is going through a a new type of repentance process. And Mm -hmm. when, you know, you're talking about the wrath of God, when we are coming into seeing a new God, of course, civilization around us is all in this Cain narrative that we've talked about before. And where we, just like Cain in our sin and our trauma, we're the ones that are looking at and thinking that there's this divine retributive justice, this balancing of the scale, this eye for an eye justice, that God was never the one to reveal that. He he did not do that when the first murder happened. That was all Cain. Cain is the inventor of that. And it happens in our trauma that we refuse to let out. And we're going to see, you know, we were talking about this, but in chapter three, we're going to see the brother of Jared in kind of a, uh, an anti-Cain moment with God, which is absolutely beautiful. But here we're starting to see that we are all born in to culture that is living the Cain narrative. 
And so, of course, we're going to have to learn to see God differently. We're going to have to see him as the true God that he is, that he's revealing himself to be in the Sermon on the Mount. It has nothing to do with the fact that I can't stomach a violent God. It has nothing to do with my emotions can't stomach a violent God or that kind of mean, vindictive, wrathful God. It's not that I, I, it doesn't set well with me and that I get angry about it. That has nothing at all to do with it. It's because when I read the Sermon at the Temple in the Book of Mormon and the Sermon on the Mount in the, in the New Testament, I see a new God revealed. A new God revealed in those moments teaching us to be who and what he really is. You have heard it hath been said that I'm this way, that this is the way that I've revealed it this way. But I say unto you, this is what it's always been. You have heard it hath been said this in this way. But I say unto you, this is what I've always been trying to show you of who and what I am. And so it's like this, you've heard it has been said this in in days of old, and this is how people perceived me in days of old. But I'm coming here to reveal myself into you in a new way for you to understand that this is who I've always been. And everything that's been reported about me before, well, people, I'll, I'll deal with them. But this is who I am. And so it's just a new way of doing it. I see the brother of Jared doing this as well. And I think what you said with language is really powerful there, Ben, because, yeah, in verse 8 where he talks about the wrath and coming forth, I just can't imagine a God saying, here's this beautiful, wonderful, well-preserved, never-been-inhabited land. And before you go, I just want you to know that if you do anything wrong with it, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to injure you. I'm going to wipe you off the face of the land. Now go have fun. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's just not the way that I see this conversation going down. And, and right. so th- there's a lot that we have to kind of tease out of here to, in going back to the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and seeing who and what God was versus how man spoke and, and saw God and then wrote it down in the text. You know, and, and, and going on from that, we, in the story, what happens is that they go and they travel and um, they're, they're hanging out on the seashore for four years and they think they may have arrived where they're supposed to be, but the Lord, you know, says, I, I have more for you. Verse 14, it came to pass that at the end of four years that the Lord came again unto the brother of Jared and stood in a cloud and talked with him. And for the space of three hours did the Lord talk with the brother of Jared and chastened him because he remembered not to call upon the name of the Lord. So this this word chastened or chastised, we've we've talked about this before in the context of of how, what it means for the Lord to chasten someone. And um, it's simply not... Um, so we might think in a normal context of one person chastening another that this is basically a shaming session where um, they're shaming the person into changing their ways and telling them how awful they were and that this is supposed to be some sort of motivation for them to change. And because of my experiences with how the Lord deals with me in these things, that has never, ever happened to me in that way. The Lord has never done that, has never shamed me or told me how awful I am as a way of motivating me to uh, become better in terms of reducing my worth. It's always been in a different way. Yes, he points out the things that need to change, but chastened is done in a loving, 
kind, patient way. And so <clears throat> I don't see any shaming or beating up happening here. You know, you see Brother Jared, <laughs> I imagine <laughs> way that I saw this before, the Brother Jared walks into the cloud, you know, and then you hear all these... <laughs> <laughs> he beats him up. Jesus beats the brother Jared up. And the brother Jared comes out, you know, all bruised and stuff, says, yeah, I deserved that because I, I was a bad guy. You know, that that's not at all what happened, right? You know, I'm obviously being hyperbolic. I don't I don't think anybody would, would say that's what happened. Um, and if they're honest with themselves and their experiences with God, they would see this this one-on-one -on -one personal experience between the brother of Jared and the Lord is a moment where they've, they've sat down and they've had a three-hour sit with God. And this completely changes the brother of Jared's view of God. And he understands him so much better. And he's becoming less nebulous here, right? He's, he's a little more defined. He's starting to understand more about who he is. Um, and the brother of Jared repented of the evil, which he had done and did call upon the name of the Lord for his brethren who were with him. And the Lord said unto him, I will forgive thee thy brethren of their sins. So he's already starting to see the Lord as a more loving, patient, merciful God that is not trying to punish him, that is not trying to cause, um, him any grief or problems. He's actually trying to always reaching out for him to, to love him and, and to bless him. Um, and then the Lord said unto him, I will forgive thee and thy brethren of their sins, but thou shalt not sin anymore. I see this in here with the woman taken in adultery. You know, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. For you shall remember that my spirit shall not always strive with man. Wherefore, if you will sin until you are fully ripe, you shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. So, um, here we have this phrase, spirit, not always strive with man, almost like the Lord has like this spiritual limit where it's like, you know, he's only going to call you to repentance, you know, like 20 times. And then you've used up your repentance quota and, uh, and you know, that's it. You're done. Right. And, um, I think I wouldn't have phrased it that way, but I think I used to think it like that, you know, almost like. The Lord was going to give you a certain amount of time and, and try to persuade you, you know, to do this. But if you just ignored it, that would just go away, right? right. <laughs> What's that thing that your <laughs> trainer said? Just ignore it. It'll go yeah, away. Yeah, that's right. Um, I don't, it's not the Lord that goes away. It's, it's us that loses our ability, um, or not, not ability, but our um, willingness or our propensity to listen. And maybe you could say ability, but the thing is that the fact remains that we always have that ability because all we have to do is turn just like Alma and immediately we can feel it again. And so we will not always um, feel the striving of the spirit within us if we constantly ignore it because we will, we will lose um, that attention. Our eyes will be constantly turned in a different way. So I don't see this as a description of the Lord's spirit having limits in terms of its ability to reach us, what this is a description of is um, what's going to happen if we don't try to repent ever. And um, I rather see us as if we're repenting every day, then the Spirit will 
constantly strive with us, right? Um, because we are seeking to repent every day. And the longer we go without repenting and, and really seeing things afresh and new, the less um, propensity or if you want to use the word ability, we have to see the Lord's hand in our life and, and recognize the blessings around us. It really is such a great example of God's persistence in always coming after us. You know, that prodigal father who's who sees us from a ways off and comes running towards us and who stands to reason those who didn't go wandering off, but who stayed there and believe that they've earned their reward that, uh, you know, they even sit there and he grapples with with us when when we're that person, right? And here yeah. we see the brother of Jared. What I liked about some of these verses here in, in chapter two was that kind of going back to this metaphorical nature of chapter two, that when they had followed this cloud and they'd gone into the wilderness where nobody had ever been before. And now, just like you said, God is now kind of being made more aware in their lives. He's starting to take a little bit more meaning, a little bit more understanding and in that way, when the people, they start to wonder like, well, what should we do? We're not supposed to stay here. So we often set to the work building our own answers and solutions. And, you know, we have this, uh, this phrase from Brigham Young, you know, God only helps those who help themselves. And, you know, I've talked about that before. I'm like, man, I sure hope that's not true because, <laughs> because, <laughs> because my own experience with God has been that in the moments when I was least deserving God and when I was not helping or helping myself, that's when God came down to find me and he's found me multiple times in that area. And then from that motivation, I begin to act. I begin to, I begin to grow. And I see when they start to actually grow and, and they go out and they start making these bu- these barges, right? As long as a tree and mm-hmm. tight like into a dish, right? You know, one of my favorite Book of Mormon verses. Says it. I love those phrases. <laughs> <laughs> right? And, and they were built after the manner and they were exceedingly tight, even though they would hold water like into a dish. And the bottom thereof was tight like into a dish. And the sides thereof were tight like into a dish. And the ends thereof were peaked, and the top thereof was tight, like into a dish. I just, it's, it's one of the, the classic phrase, you know, verses of the Book of Mormon. And we see in our lives that we go to work of our own ingenuity to try to create solutions to the problems that are in front of us. You know, God opened up the sea that people walked through it. Here, their own solution for themselves was to build a barge. Now, who's to say what the right one was? But regardless, I love the ingenuity of doing things on our own and then going back to God and doing things on our own and going back to God. And there's no way to know, but I kind of, I would kind of wish to ask God at the, going, going back that, is there a way that we, you would have just provided everything? That if they would have just been there in a state of contemplation with you, that you would have provided everything for them? Or was it necessary for them to have to actually do this stuff? Because a lot of this, I don't know if a lot of this is causation or correlation, that it was correlated that they did do this stuff. And God's like, I see that you're working hard. I see that you're doing that kind of stuff. And it's not necessary. I would have provided it for you if if you just sit here with me. But I see that you're working here, so I, I'm going to bless you with this. You know, that for me is very correlated because 
from my standpoint, the way I've always read this was kind of Brigham Young's God only helps those who help themselves kind of a thing. Now, I'm not talking about living a kind of life where you just sit back on your porch and you expect God to go out and plant your 40 acres. And, and all the ravens bring you your right, food. Right, have ravens, bring, <laughs> ravens <laughs> bring you your food. Or maybe that happens. I don't, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but I think what we're trying to do is we're, we're not getting down to uh, an external ethic about how we should act. This is more like an internal ethic about how we sit with God and how God manifests himself in us. You know, maybe it was that they did sit with God and it manifested in the fact that they just got up and they're like, let's just do something today. So they built a barge or maybe it was that they didn't know how to do anything. And so they were just trying to figure it out. And so they built themselves a barge and regardless, they go to God and God's like, Hey, good job. That's a good barge. It's tight. Like into a dish. And they're like, people, <laughs> the people are like, yeah, that's what we were going for. And God's like, yeah, good job. You did it. And then he blesses them for it. Right. But we, we see with, I, I think it's really kind of telling of the brother of Jared because he's like, Lord, I, I don't know how to breathe in these things. And God's like, put a hole in the top yeah. and in the bottom <laughs> and then stuff it. <laughs> <laughs> and the brother of Jared being like, oh, oh. <laughs> and, then, and then the brother, you know, of course they don't have electricity. They can't. And then the brother of Jared's like, wait, we need light and we can't have a fire in there because the smoke. So what do we know? But and at this point, you know, you see the brother of Jared kind of getting himself prepared. Like, okay, I, I already asked the Lord for a stupid question with the holes. I'm going to go out here. <laughs> I'm going to go out here and do this thing with, 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 with the stones. And so he, you know, he gathers up these stones and, uh, and, and does what he does with them. But yeah, just this whole process and this relationship between us coming to God, doing our thing and then asking God to bless it as if maybe we thought that we really needed to do it for God to bless it. Maybe God would have provided it otherwise. I, I don't have a good answer to this. I, this is one of those things that I'm still pondering and working over. And I haven't, I've read so many things about it from, you know, LDS sources and otherwise, because this really goes back to the Sermon on the Mount of God saying, take no thought for the morrow. The morrow takes things, care of it, the things of itself. And I think this really has more to do with the state of being than it does actually like a, an ethical external rule for action. Um, that, you know, we're not, we just really honestly take no thought, like don't even think about tomorrow. Don't plan for tomorrow. You know, that's not, I don't think that's what God's talking about at all. Um, it's more, don't have anxiety for tomorrow. Don't let it ruin your peace. If tomorrow doesn't shape up the way that it is, then that's fine, but you can't think of tomorrow and change it. So just do what you can today. And so in a lot of ways, I'm thinking that's, really more what's going on here in this relationship but anyway just just some more thoughts as i was going through and trying to figure this out because i haven't really gotten a a firm a, a firm grasp or come down on any kind of solid conclusion about where i think this is at but i really do love their example and how they proactively went out to do these things and even if it was god directing them or if they were doing things just thinking god it would only ever help them if they actually did it themselves or if it was they were just inspired by the love of God and just wanted to go out and to do it. Any one of those three, I, I think, would be absolutely fascinating. So verse 16 does say that the Lord tells them to go build the barges 
uh, as they have been doing it, and then that they did it according to the instructions of the Lord. But along with what you were saying in terms of you know taking no thought or whatever, I think it's it's more along the lines of uh, you know we're, rather than having anxiety about something we're doing, we realize that the Lord is right there with us while we're doing it, and that we can we have the freedom to um to do it the best we know how and um that we don't have to be over anxious about it not working out you know it's kind of like when i um maybe i'm teaching my kids to to make something you know and um i'm sitting right there with them and it's like you know they need to to actually experience the process of making something um but you know i'm sitting right there with them and nothing terrible is nothing earth shattering is going to happen if they don't do it exactly right or 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 make a mistake or something i can i can be right there with them and i, I can help them correct it or or teach them a better way or something and so it's more of a recognition that the lord is right there with us and so our inadequacies don't matter so much or we not that they don't matter maybe isn't the word but we don't have to be anxious about our inadequacies because the lord is there with us and so i see here that um you know i was reading verse 17 and and part of my notes on this was you know they they've got all this description of these barges that that these, you know, saying they're tight like into a dish. In in other words, these are the best barges. I mean, they've been spending years crossing this land and all these water, and they've gained a lot of experience. They know how to build these things really well. They've got this down. They are master barge builders. And so they make these things and they are wonderfully, you know, expert craft. But notwithstanding the absolute most amazing work that a man can do it is not gonna help at all it's not gonna do them any good crossing the ocean by itself it's not gonna do them any good because as soon as they go and get those and get in the ocean what does the brother jared say he says they're gonna we're not gonna have any light we're not gonna be able to steer and we're not gonna be able to breathe um so i'll talk about those three things here in a minute but in other words you know this is this kind of goes to the the grace and works things that no matter what we do there's there's not any amount of works or or so forth that we do that that saves us right um the lord wants us to have an experience of creating with him um but he's the one that saves us and so he's the one that instructed them on building the barges um, even though their work was really masterfully, he's the one that gives them light. He's the one that steers them. He's the one that tells them how they're going to breathe. Every single thing comes from the Lord. And so this verse 19 is really fascinating to me. It says, behold, O Lord, in them, there is no light. Whither shall we steer? And also we shall perish for in them, we cannot breathe. So these three words, light, steer, and breathe, um, are related to, um, the way that Christ is described. He's described as the way, the truth, and the life. Um, and so here we have the light. This is often uh, in scripture synonymous with truth. We have steering here being the way, right? The direction 
where you should go, and then breathing or breath being synonymous with life. And so literally the Lord is everything for them in this case. And he provides all of those things for them. He tells them how they're going to breathe. He says he's going to steer them on the ocean. They don't have to worry about it at all. And then he says, I'll take care of the light, but um, I want to first hear your ideas. <laughs> what do you what do you think should be done about it? I want you, you know, I want you to experience this process. But don't be don't be anxious about it because I'm going to take care of it. But what do you what do you want me to do? Um, and I think that is such a fascinating exchange question there. The Lord asking the brother Jared what he wants him to do. Because it it engages us in the process and the experience of becoming like Christ. But it also shows us that we are fully reliant on him at the same time. And so uh, it's just a really interesting exchange of how this happens and then you know rolls into the brother jared's actual experience with being with the lord okay yeah i just adopted everything that you just said i'll go with that (laughs) 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 i I like that a lot i i I really do i i love that whole imagery of of being completely reliant upon god but him enveloping us into the, the creative process and of, of being able to open up into that that moment, ability of creating it and building it and going into it. Because then at that point, just like you said, there's no anxiety here. It's like, hey, there's no anxiety in this process. This isn't about you um, doing it on your own. This is about you coming into this relationship with me that, that we live and exist together. And and that we're doing this as as one. And in this whole repentance process that we see the brother of Jared going through about learning how to see God differently when it's just a cloud there. And now all of a sudden, this process, he's beginning to see God's nature more perfectly and more clearly and being able to be wrapped up into this moment of of grace. You know, it, it really is. It's a, it's a powerful story of grace that I hadn't uh, recognized before. So over here, we get into chapter three, and um, he brings these these stones um, to the Lord, asks him to touch them. Um, and there's a lot of discussion that can go around that. But what stood out to me this time was verse 5 um, of chapter 3. He says, Behold, O Lord, thou canst do this. We know that thou art able to show forth great power, which looks small unto the understanding of men. To me, this was such a great description of meekness, right? This This power that seems so small and insignificant to man. I mean, we could look at the Beatitudes, all of the Beatitudes as they're described, seem just like total foolishness. Um, what what does he call it? Small unto the understanding of men. These seem like insignificant uh, attributes of a person. They don't seem like they are are are, vir- are really um, significant, powerful attributes of a person. Like when you write a biography of a person, go through those, go through the Beatitudes. And most biographies aren't going to have much about any of the Beatitudes in them. I mean, maybe one here or there. Um, but mostly they're going to talk about how that person had power in other ways. And here it's so fascinating that he says, show forth great power which looks small under the understanding of men and again this to me is is like meekness this 
this power that seems small and insignificant, but what is the blessing of meekness? The meek shall inherit the earth. I mean, they get everything. They win the game. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about Alma 9 again when it talks about the glory of God and, and that being the grace and equity and truth and patience and mercy and hearing the cries of his people, that that's the glory of God, that that's the whole point of everything. We're expecting this really big fanfare because that's what man needs. Man needs to be able to see this this external reality and the power that is there. And God comes in secretly and quietly into the heart. And so, yeah, that's what, what a great find. We know that thou art able to show forth great power, but this is going to look small to the understanding of men. Yeah. Wow. To me, that is personified in Christ's entry into Jerusalem where he's sitting on a donkey and uh, you have all the people waving the palms, right? Like this meekness and humility that seems so simple and insignificant, but is actually a demonstration of great power. You know, you, you've brought up meekness a couple times, Ben. I had a conversation with a friend on, uh, on social media here this week where we had a conversation about meekness in context of the Beatitudes. And I started talking about it in, in a new way that uh, kind of a new analogy that, that really kind of landed for me. But we know that the poor in spirit is about getting rid of all of those identities. And the analogy that I, I, I thought of when I was having this conversation was that we live our lives having like these plugs that we're trying to plug in to relationships all around us. And we've got different size of plugs and different forms of plugs and different voltage of plug, everything. And we're trying to plug these in everywhere. And, and so sometimes we come across friends, we call them friends because this one cable fits into that person's plug and we resonate with each other, right? I found a way to belong. And so all of these plugs and all of these identities that we have, we form these identities because we're trying to fit in to the context of the world around us, right? We assume identities because that gives us a place to belong. That gives us meaning and purpose that we belong somewhere, that we're a part of something, that if, so long as this ego, this, you know, this part of my ego can fit in here and fit over there and I can plug in here. And we start to realize that there's hundreds of places where we don't belong because we don't have a plug to be able to fit into that particular space. And part of that being poor in spirit is to realize that you just take away all of that, all of those plugs and you just let them go. You surrender everything. And the difficulty there is because in context of your world around you, you're surrounded by a world that only sees you by the plugs that you have and how you can connect into the world around you. And that when you let that go and you surrender all of that and you're meek, all of a sudden you've lost your ability of connecting and finding a place here in this earth. You're alone because you have no plugs. You've given them away. You're plugless, as it were. Call it wireless. <laughs> and so now we're sitting here in this wireless state of being. And all of a sudden God comes along and says, now you're the universal port. You're, you're the universal source. You belong everywhere. Everything is yours. 
because you gave up on your little egos and your little identities and trying to fit into the world. You've let that go. And now you can go anywhere. It's like now you're the universal plug, as it were, that you just go in wirelessly and now you're just, you just exist everywhere to be able to plug into anything, anywhere you go. Everything is now yours. And when I, when I look at this and I see the brother of Jared coming into the state of meekness, I, he's looking for a place to belong. He's looking for that promised land. He's looking for that choice land, someplace set apart where he can belong. And so, you know, this analogy for me, this promised land for me is allegorically is beginning to take on this role that the promised land is this place where we all belong. It's the inheriting of the earth. Mm-hmm. It's the state right. of being. It's, it's the manifestation for those who are meek. And so this whole story of the brother of Jared leaving his one land and his old identities, his his old everything and journeying here with coming to a new knowledge of God is this process of meekness where he is now the process of how he inherited. In other words, he inherited the earth, how he inherited this promised land this the symbolism of the promised land. And yeah, it comes in by ways that are absolutely befuddling to the the way men do things that the way that the, the earth does things and the way that human beings and our civilizations are, connecting with each other with their identities and all of our pomp and circumstance and our power politics and our our money and however we want to gauge power and yet god just like he does there with his temptations right with uh, satan and the, and the temptations where satan's like i will give you all of the earth i will give you everything and it's not that jesus christ stands there as the creator of the earth realizing <laughs> it's already mine right but it's that he doesn't take Satan's hook. He doesn't take the bait. He doesn't take the identity that he has to follow the path of Satan, the accuser, to be able to fit in. Mm-hmm. He stands there in his humility and in his meekness. And as the universal, he fits in everywhere. He's already inherited everything because he has nothing. It's that, yes, it's all his, but even if it weren't, what does he say? You know, only God should we worship. And and so the the response to that isn't, well, I'm already more powerful than you, because that's just playing the same game as Satan. His response is, you know, I submit to my father. Yeah. Wow, that's just, you know, that's the perfect response obviously it's the perfect response <laughs> christ is the one who said it but it, it it's i mean what do you say about it it's just so profound and and true it's just truth um i like how this this so the story proceeds here with the brother of jared asking the lord to to touch them with his finger now what's so interesting is he asked the lord to touch it with his finger i'm not sure what he was expecting <laughs> because he wasn't expecting him to actually touch him with his finger. You know, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe he thought there was some like cloud finger, or, you know, this is a metaphorical finger. I'm asking the Lord to touch him with uh, not his real finger. And so then he sees the real finger and <laughs> it really, it really jolts this idea. You know, he, he, he's like, wait, I didn't, there's something I didn't understand. All of a sudden God is a little, is defined in a little bit different way than I saw before. And so he's afraid. Right, he's kind of thrown into this, this unknown 
for a minute, but he doesn't lose what he does know about God. And he, he talks about it here in a bit, what he does know and understand about God and his experience before he holds on to. He doesn't let it all go away because there are certain things that he knows about the character of God, but he does let go of the things that he realizes were not correct. And this is such a fascinating little question here. So he falls down uh, before the Lord, for he was struck with fear. And the Lord saw that the brother of Jared had fallen to the earth. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, why hast thou fallen? Um, you know, the Lord knows the answer to that question. Um, and the Lord, I, I, I'm not sure, I'd have to look for examples in the scriptures of the Lord asking rhetorical questions. But he seems, when he asks a question, he seems to actually want an answer to it. <laughs> and... He, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. It's because you need to learn the answer. And it's literally by speaking the answer to these questions that we learn the truth to them. Because it's, uh, as we've discussed before, you know, um, we learn in psychology, and this turns out to be a, a concept that looks really consistent with our experience in scripture, that when we speak our trauma, we come to understand it better and we come to master it better. And so the Lord's invitation here to the brother of Jared is speak your trauma. What just happened to you? Articulate what just happened to you. Articulate your experience. And I'm right here. I am here. You don't need to, don't be afraid. Tell me what's your experience. What are you experiencing right now? I can help you understand it. And so that's so fascinating to me that he he asks him that question. And and then the brother of Jared responds in a faithful way. Um, he, he doesn't try to mitigate it or try to be prideful about his response. He just says, I was afraid. I didn't understand what was happening. You have a finger. I didn't realize you had a finger. Um, all my experience with with uh, gods and and them being embodied means they're going to strike you down. You know, like I, I've got all of these false narratives about God and those are what just came out right now in my fear. And so that's what I thought was going on. So he speaks this trauma, this false notion, and then immediately the Lord explains to him the truth. And so all of those false notions disappear and uh, the Lord said unto him, Believest thou the words which I shall speak? And he answered, Yea, Lord, I know that thou speakest the truth, for thou art a God of truth and canst not lie. And when he had said these words, behold, the Lord showed himself unto him and said, Because thou knowest these things, ye are redeemed from the fall. You know, I, I think I used to think, and, and I think it in part is this, but I used to think that what the scripture was talking about is because he knew that Christ had a spirit body that was in the image of his physical body, that he was redeemed from the fall. And I think that's only, um, that's totally an ancillary knowledge to what is really going on here. And what, what the brother of Jared really knows that redeems him from the fall is what he just said in the previous verse. I know that thou speakest the truth, for thou art a God of truth and canst not lie. That is a fundamental defining characteristic of who God is. And the brother of Jared knows it not just intellectually anymore. He knows it by experience. 
And so he truly knows that, um, has a correct idea of the character of God and his relationship to him. So he can fully trust God because he does not ever lie. And so no longer is there that fear anymore, right? That trauma has been healed by the truth. Yeah, how powerful is this? How absolutely amazing. I mean, this is this is really hitting me hard right now as we're going through this. Just to see the Lord doing this again. You know, this is, as we've talked about, kind of the an- antithesis to the Cain narrative where Cain, God comes down, he's like, hey, right. Cain, where's your brother? And Cain's like, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? <laughs> and yep. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep, that's exactly right. And Cain refuses to speak his trauma. And then everything that comes out and falls out from there and him not healing from it is what begins his, the journey towards his curse and everything that is his curse. But yet here, the brother of Jared, I, and I love what you were talking about there, Ben, about the Lord just being there and it's like, Hey, you've had trauma. You've had something just happened here. And why, why are you afraid? Why have you fallen? And the Lord already knows, and it's not about the Lord. The Lord is there for J- the brother of Jared. He's there for him. And man, bless the brother of Jared. And he just, he gets up and he's like, in his, in that fear, he's like, I saw the finger of the Lord and I fear that he should smite me. He feared that God would smite him. He feared that God was vengeful, that God was violent, and that God was angry. See, he had seen the finger of God. He had had enough faith that he could approach God, but yet he still didn't understand his nature. And he goes, and I did not know that the Lord had flesh and blood. But the fear was that he would be smitten. <laughs> and the Lord is in, says there, and he says, because of thy faith, thou hast seen that I shall take upon me the flesh and blood, and never has a man come before me with such exceeding faith as thou hast. Yeah, but then, and then the Lord, just, just like you read again, I'm just rereading what you already said, but he's like, have, have you seen any more than this? Well, of course the Lord knows what the brother of Jared saw. But now he's really getting the brother of Jared to come to speaking out the truth of what he saw, the experience that he had. Where the brother of Jared then says, no, show thyself unto me. Now, this is beautiful because the first thing that Brother Jared... That's bold. It's <laughs> super bold because the first thing that Brother Jared said, not five seconds before, was, I thought you were going to kill me. And it's in this, in this split second, this, split, this minute seconds, that Brother Jared now has full confidence in God. Please show yourself to me. That fear is gone. It happened that fast. It went from fear of being destroyed to a love and an awareness and a wanting to be there in the presence of God. This is a spiritual singularity, right? Where you have a moment previously that converges on this point and everything changes from here on out in terms of his experience. Yeah. Every, everything changes. And it's not simply that he sees God, but it's that he he's understanding the true nature of God, that the nature of that which he is worshiping. 
It starts as a cloud it's, and, and it brings in through this repentance process and through this being meek and through the journey of him inheriting the earth, being brought in and emptying himself out and then being filled. And, you know, we're following the beatitude journey here until finally he is now being brought into the presence of God. And this is where he begins to be now understand the mission of Jesus Christ and who and what it means to be Christ. So he begins this this explanation, the Lord begins this explanation of who he is, what it means to be Christ. In me shall all mankind have life, he says. And then here later in verse 15, um, he says, seest thou that you are created after my own image? So after talking about how amazing he is, and he's God, and he's all powerful, and he's all truthful, he then turns to the brother and Jared and says, you're just like me. Wow. (laughs) You were created with the intention to be just like me. Take upon yourself my name. Seest thou that you're created after mine own image? Yea, even, and now not just brother Jared, not just you are just like me. Yea, even all men were created in the beginning after mine own image. This is what I want for all of father's children. I want them all to become like me and experience what you're experiencing right now. And so then he goes on and talks about that experience. And it gets to a point where Moroni says, and now as I Moroni said, I could not make a full account of these things which are written. (laughs) You know, he stops right before. Before this gets too good, we're going to cut away. (laughs) And, um, but, but uh, he says, Therefore, it sufficeth me to say that Jesus showed himself unto this man in the spirit, even after the manner and in the likeness of the same body as he showed himself unto the Nephites. So here we have sort of a microcosm recounting of the whole third Nephi experience, uh, which is to say that everything that we read about in third Nephi is basically what the brother of Jared now experiences and learns Um in the course of his uh, discussion with the Lord. And he ministered unto him, verse 18, even as he ministered unto the Nephites and all this, that this man might know that he was God because of the many great works which the Lord had showed unto him. And because of the knowledge of this man, he could not be kept from beholding within the veil. So, Again, like I was saying, you know, brother of Jared basically has the whole third Nephi experience. Um, he see, he he gets uh, the Lord coming to him and teaching him Sermon on the Mount stuff. I imagine I can't imagine him not, you know, teaching those types of principles. Um, he says he ministers to him, you know, blessing him, teaching him. So he he has that whole experience, and then be and then moves on and the brother of Jared uh, receives the gift of seership. Now, this seems to be symbolized at least metaphorically, but um, apparently literally as well, although I don't quite understand the the literalness of this at this point, um, by these seer stones. And I'm not sure what the relation is between these two stones that the Lord gives him and the 16 stones that he brought to be touched. And maybe there's no relation at all. Um, it might be something to to look into and, and ponder over a little bit. 
Um, but in any case, the, what, what seems to be going on here towards the end of chapter three is that the brother of Jared has an experience similar to Enoch. And I've always loved Enoch's description um, of, or I guess it's Moses that, that writes it, the description of, of Enoch and what he experiences. Um, because Enoch goes and washes his eyes and then his, his spiritual eyes are opened and he sees everyone for who they are. He sees all the spirits of men, it says. And then he's able to go preach. And because he understands people for who they are on a deep spiritual level, his preaching becomes powerful unto the convincing of people. And then, you know, this is a, a, another discussion about like language and the power of language, because then it says the power of the speech of Enoch was so powerful, you know, that he was able to move mountains and, and do all these sort of things, um, which, you know, goes back to your discussion about, about calculus and stuff, a uh, fascinating concept of language. But um, here, like I said, this is, this is sort of akin to uh, Enoch's experience where the brother of Jared in verse 25, he showed unto the brother of Jared all the inhabitants of the earth, which had been, and also all that would be, and he withheld them not from his sight, even unto the ends of the earth. Well, it, you can't, because once you're in that spiritual viewing state, you know, everything comes into view, past, present, future. Um, you step out of that time concept, so to speak, it seems, <clears throat> and you see things for, for what they really are. And that seems to be the experience that the brother of Jared is having here. Yeah, I like what you're talking about there with the seership because, you know, with the stones, one of the things that I've talked about Joseph Smith about when he when he finally gets these stones, right? And uh, and they're passed down from basically yeah. this story all the way down to, we get down to Joseph Smith when Moroni hides them up, is that Joseph only uses these for a little while. And then he graduates right. to, you know, the stone in the hat. And then he graduates to nothing. And he, sometimes he doesn't even consult the plates. And, and so there's this evolution that Joseph goes through in how he's tra in quote unquote translate. He's not translating anything. He doesn't know how to translate. Um, whatever it is, we don't have a word for whatever he's doing. But what I love about the story about Joseph is th especially through using the Yerman Thummim and this process that he, he eventually doesn't need anything anymore. I've looked at that as a type of the Joseph became the Yerman Thummim that he awoke the inner divine within mm. himself, that God often gives us external stimuli, sometimes of his making, sometimes... Almost like an ordinance type yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes of our own making, sometimes of his. You know, the, the seer's stones were of God's making, and, and the hat was of Joseph's. And you rely on one, you rely on the other, until finally nothing. You, you don't rely on anything external. You just, it, it emanates from within you. And in this, I, I wonder what this has to do with being a seer, that it's awakening that inner voice of the divine, that inner spark, the inner light of Christ that we are literally tapping into. And this gets into conversations I've had before about the gift of the Holy Ghost and in my own personal life, and this is a really long tangent that I don't want to get into, but in short, it's that... The question that I've I've taught in seminary and we've taught in other places, the number one question is, how do I know if I'm getting the voice of the Spirit or if it's my own voice? And I think that question is a bad question. Because in my personal experience, I've learned that, at least for myself, that 
the overwhelming moments that I've recorded down in my journals that I've gone back to where I felt like I've had the voice of the spirit and that heavy was my own voice. It was from me. And I don't look at that as a tangent or an aside. I look at that as the very point that the gift of the Holy Ghost is not some like, we, we often talk about it as like this third party that sits down here next to us if we're worthy of it and, and, and it speaks to us everything that we need to know. And like it, like it, it whispers little barking orders like do this, don't do that, don't do this, do this. You know, it gives us comfort. It's like, it's, it's like you're okay. Yeah, shoulder angel. Like a shoulder angel, right? But in this <laughs> particular way, no, I look at the Holy Ghost now as though when I'm asking for questions, it's almost like I'm, I'm awakening the inner divine within myself and answering my own questions. And the Holy Ghost is a witness that says, yeah, that's what it is right there. And I'm like, yeah, that's what it was, huh? And it's just like Joseph Smith. It's awakening that inner divine. Now, sometimes I've had, I've had quote unquote answers that were me, that were from my ego. And I've had to learn how to differentiate between ego-based Shiloh and this other type of trying to tap into the inner divine and in my relationship with the Holy ghost. And, and so in, in a lot of ways, it, it is awakening that inner sense of who and what we are in literally becoming like our heavenly parents. When, when I look at my heavenly, the idea anyway that I have of them is not that they're reliant anymore on their own version of the Holy ghost to bear witness to them in that particular case. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. I, I just don't view it that way. I view God as a self-independent being that has learned to emanate truth from himself or herself, right? Mm -hmm. And that emanation comes from them and they've had to learn how to do that. And if we're going to learn how to be like them in this life, it stands to reason that's what we're doing. And as I've gone back in my own life, I found that that's, that's more than not what's actually going on is I'm tapping into that inner divine within myself. And then I have a witness here. And a companion that says, yeah, that's it. So when we talk about here... Well, I think there's a, there's a lot to that. Yeah. yeah, so when we talk here, and it says in verse 20, Wherefore, having this perfect knowledge of God, he could not be kept from within the veil. Therefore, he saw Jesus and did minister unto him. And he did minister unto him. I see this as this perfect knowledge. He's coming into awakening that inner divine. That he's now resonating with Christ. That that's part of how he brings himself into the veil. Now, in chapter 4, it starts to talk about the veil of unbelief. And I don't, I don't person, I'm beginning to see belief in a different way. And belief for me is not in this type of, I come across with a, a particular propositional statement or a truth claim, and I'm going to choose to, to that that's the truth, right? That's what I'm going to believe. I see belief as being a far more organic experience where it's an emanation of that inner divine coming out. It's not necessarily an intellectual in my head, I choose to think this is true, so much as there is there is something going on from within us that is we're experiencing God, and that experience is then coming in to to affect the rest of our lives. And we begin to see that, that, that effect. And that that becomes the basis of our belief. So it's not just an intellectual pursuit. It has to be an experiential one. And so in that way, the veil of unbelief, it's not just that I have to believe harder because I don't know how to, I, I honestly, I don't know how to believe harder. I, I don't know what that is like as a human experience. <laughs> it's like, it's like, I'm, 
if I'm going to believe in the tooth fairy, if I just believe harder, it's going to be true, right? I just, I just, I just uh, you know, and I, I clench my fist and I, and I tighten my jaw and I, and I, and I, and I, and I tighten my muscles and I'm like, I'm going to believe harder and it doesn't do anything. So there has to be something else other than just an intellectual pursuit that actually transforms us and brings us into that presence. And so when we actually look at the brother of Jared's process, his belief system was not simply just propositional statements and just beliefs and truth claims. And I believe this is true. and I don't believe that's true. It's that he's literally coming into a relationship with God where he's learning piece by piece how to actually be with God. So that that belief is not just a matter of uh, kind of like a mental construct in a propositional statement. It's actually an emanation of who and what he is. And so I see that the veil of unbelief here is far more experiential than I think it is analytical. You know, in other words, that it's like I can't just clench down and believe myself through the veil. It's that there's this moment of actually experiencing God and coming into that relationship with God that helps us, that lends us through opening that veil of unbelief. Yeah, I like that. I think that explains it well. Um, you know, you were talking earlier about your experience with the Spirit and the question of discerning um, your own ideas from the Spirit. And Moroni actually, I think he's one of the few prophets that kind of, you know, gets this and and has some really good um, ideas about discernment. And he talks about them in uh, chapter seven of Moroni, but he kind of hints at it here. Um, and this is what the Lord is telling him so that, but this is more Moroni's expression of what the Lord has revealed to him. And it starts in verse 11 of chapter four, but he that believeth these things, which I have spoken, him will I visit with the manifestations of my spirit and he shall know and bear record for because of my spirit, he shall know that these things are true for it persuadeth men to do good. And whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do good is of me. For good cometh of none, save it be of me. I am the same that leadeth men to all good. So, you know, you were talking about whether trying to figure out if something comes from the spirit, your own ideas or whatever. And I think Moroni is telling us here, he's like, look, if it persuades you to do good, and then later in Moroni chapter 7 where he says to believe in Christ and God and to emulate Christ in your life, then it is from the Spirit. You know, whether whether it comes from your own ideas or from the Holy Ghost, it's truth. And so it's from the Spirit, right? What, is, what does Nephi say? Angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost, wherefore they speak the words of Christ. And so when you are speaking truth, then you are speaking in that that spirit of truth, right? Through that spirit of truth. And so it's kind of one in the same. It's not, we don't have to like sit down and try to figure out if it's one or the other. Um, so I, I, you know, I like what you were saying there about how the Lord is is trying to help us become uh, Urim and Thummim, so to speak, right? Those things through which truth can be made manifest. We're trying to become Christ's in that sense, Right things through which the truth of God is made manifest. And we do that um, by 
taking upon herself the name of Christ. And so another symbolism of that is us becoming, you know, that that Urim and Thummim, that thing through which the truth of things is made manifest, that spirit, the spirit of truth. They're all they're all things that sort of are analogous um, to the the fact that we're trying to become like Christ. Yeah, and in, I like that a lot. That it's almost not even worthwhile to try to differentiate. It becomes like one and the same because you end up into this relationship with God where sometimes you don't know where your voice ends and the spirit begins, and so it's this harmonious that we we, we it's almost like a metaphysical unity that we become one, and which you know is that theme is throughout all the scriptures. And I like here in verse fifteen when it says. But when you shall rend that veil of unbelief, which doth cause you to remain in your awful state of wickedness and hardness of heart and blindness of mind, then shall the great and marvelous things which have been hid up from the foundation of the world from you, yea, when you shall call upon the Father in my name with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, then you shall know that the Father hath remembered the covenants which he hath made unto your fathers, O house of Israel. Now, this is magnificently the first beatitude here this is that whole listen when you've that whole state that thing which causes you to remain in the awful state of wickedness the awful state of wickedness is simply all of these associations and ties that bind us to this life it's it's everything that keeps us out from having the eternal view from having a temporary view where you know president nelson talked about you know being myopic in conference so about having short-sighted it's those things that keep us in a short-sighted view where we're failing to see the eternal long view of things. And if we truly had the long view of our lives and of our of this entity that we, you know, my entity I call Shiloh, but this this body and this experience and everything that I am and, and this eternal identity that I have, if I truly had that eternal identity, then what fear do I have of things like death? What fear do I have of anything that this life can throw at me because I see, I see, start to see the eternal view. And that's here what this blindness of mind and these things, which the, the eternal nature and everything that God has for us, it's that they've been kept from our view because we won't empty anything out. We, you know, if it's all about belief and if we just like get a belief claim and just a propositional claim and a truth claim, and we just want to double down on it, that never gives God any ability and room for us to be able to possibly mold or transform or grow beyond that. You know, sometimes we want to like hold absolutely to the understandings that we have because we fear that if we let go of them, then everything becomes unraveled. Like, like I, I got to believe in this or I, I can't believe in anything. And that's why I think that kind of understanding a new experiential concept of belief becomes really important for us because it allows us, like you were saying, Ben, about the brother of Jared's nature of God that he believed and he had trust and he was building on his nature of God, but he was also letting go of some of the other things that he found out were not the nature of God, right? So this isn't a moment of doubt. This isn't a moment of skepticism. The surrendering and and the poverty of spirit and that letting go of the ego is not about doubt. It's not about uh, coming into a place of skepticism and trying to like get down and root out all of our, uh, and just be skeptical about everything. It's about releasing that which we need to release in order for us to, for God to fill us with what he needs to fill us. And the question is, well, how do we, 
how do we do that? How do we know what to release and what to keep? And I think you brought up a really good key for that, that one of a, a really good key is, does it produce good fruit? Does it actually lead you to do good? Does it persuade you to do good? If it's not persuading you to do good, if that thing is not bringing you into doing good, and it's not edifying and it's not bringing that in, then you can better believe that there's a part of that that's associated to some stuff you need to let go and surrender and just get that out of your life and then turn and refocus and to see then what good comes from it. And it's just an experiment. We go through this life as an experiment. I think one of the grand things that I've learned in this life that has brought me the most peace is this mantra that I've had that God is not in a hurry. God's not in a rush. And I think sometimes as Latter-day Saints, we we get into this mindset of like gearing up and like working really hard and working really fast and hasten the God's work, re- right? Yeah, hasten the work and get working really fast and and God needs us to be working. Not and what so that we means. <laughs> that's no, yeah, that's not what that means. Um my my daughter, one of my youngest daughter, um, she suffers from a little bit of anxiety, especially if you tell her to hurry. <laughs> Yeah, and so and so if I'm like, hey, hurry, we need to go. She, it's just like all of a sudden it's like freeze uh, up. She does. She <laughs> freezes. It's literally what happens. She yep. freezes and she doesn't know how to get past it. And so what I what we do now is is I said, we need to go. Let's go right now and go get this done because it's better to get this done right now than to have to wait and then hurry. So instead of saying hurry up and go get it done, it's let's do this right now. And just by changing the verbiage a little bit, it's like, oh yeah, totally. And then boom, it's done. But I think in a lot of ways, we give ourselves this grand anxiety of the last days that God's in a hurry. And if one thing I've learned in my relationship with God is that God is not in a hurry. As I've come to God, God is just able to just sit there and to be there with me. And it's in those moments of just sitting and being with God that I've been able to release and surrender the deepest and hardest parts of my identity and just to leave them there. It's like the pilgrim's progress. You just take all those things you've been holding on to and, and carrying for so long. And you think that you're supposed to be carrying these things. And sometimes you don't even know what you're carrying until you let it go. And then it's gone. And so I see that here in this moment when in verse 15, behold, when you shall rend the veil of unbelief, which doth cause you to remain in that awful state of wickedness, that the veil of unbelief then becomes just the ego. It becomes that the, the veil there of unbelief is everything that the, the poverty of spirit that the first beatitude really gets us to let go of. Well, it's that thing that's in the way of letting you see God more in a defined way, right? So veil, cloud, Right, These are all sort of synonyms in this context of talking about the brother of Jared. He saw him through the cloud. Then he was able to see him more clearly. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's allowing those false ideas to go away, to pass away, so that we can come into uh, a better understanding. I like what you were saying about uh, your daughter in, in terms of just reframing a perspective about the situation so that, you know, anxiety doesn't have to come into the picture. Um, you know, my daughter has some experience experiences like that as well. And as I've tried to learn how to, to help her manage that, 
um, I found something similar where if I if if something needs to happen, rather than just commanding her and telling her to hurry up and do it, um, sometimes if I say, "Will you come with me?" You know, then it's no longer this like putting upon her um, this anxiety to do it. It's you know that you're gonna you can be with me in this experience. Um, now, sometimes that's not always possible because I can't go with her to do whatever she she's doing. But I have seen that um, that that invitation to to come with me to do something is not an anxiety provoking type of of thing. Now, obviously, uh, our effort is to teach our children to to become independent in the sense that um, anything that they is is put upon them doesn't induce anxiety, right? But um, I I liked that idea of of me inviting my daughter to come with me because it it seemed analogous in some ways to what the Lord invites us to do, right? You know, follow me or, or come with me, um, and that. Uh, Christ's invitation for us to follow him that doesn't have to uh, include automatically any anxiety with it. Although we often attribute a lot of anxiety to it, not because of what he invites us to do, but because of what he invites us to leave behind. And that's difficult. Man, that's so difficult. Man, if I can find a way to master that, (laughs) (laughs) just letting it go, I just, man... Man, what those really are the single most painful moments and experiences that I have, but they're they're also the most joyful. Th- those moments when I'm finally able to just let something go that I know I've been holding on to for way too long, and the pain of just letting it go, and then all of a sudden, the, almost like a euphoria in a lot of cases, where I'm like, why didn't I do that earlier? <laughs> why, did, why did I hold on to that for so long? Yeah, it's it's just, and I like what you said there about your daughter because that really goes back to what we were saying with the barges and with the Lord inviting us into that relationship with Him. That He He's like, listen, I'm going to be right here there with you, and I'm walking this with you, and I'm not just I'm not going to just be there with you, but I'm going to experience it with you. That what you're experiencing, I'm experiencing. Um, you know, Ben and I, you and I used to, we met because we used to do door to door sales. That's how we met. We, we met on a job where we did door to door sales Mm -hmm. and it's this weird, interesting phenomenon that if you don't sell anything, cause it's all a commission based job. Whenever you have door to door salesmen, it's all hundred percent commission. If you don't sell anything that day, you don't make any money that day. And nothing is a worse feeling in the world than going out and working so hard and not making anything to show for it. That that's mm. that's a hard pill to swallow. It was like the worst days ever. <laughs> but it's really funny. Is in in those days, the thing that makes you feel better is if you look around and there's someone else that did the same thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> misery loves company. <laughs> we say that, right? We say misery loves company, but in a certain way, there's beauty in that. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's that, that moment we look around for someone to be able to see us in our agony and to validate it and to say, yeah, I get it. That sucks. And there's no judgment there, you know, in those moments when, you know, we call it bageling, right? When someone comes in and they bagels that day and they get a big zero and you look around and everybody else is doing really well and it sucks the worst when somebody's done really, really well. And, <laughs> and all of a sudden you start to doubt yourself. You feel like you're pathetic. And you look around for someone else who's as pathetic as you feel, and you like you see that person, and they they look at you, and you don't even have to say anything. You just have to look at each other, 
and you know, right? And in a lot of ways, I, that's Christ for me. That's, that's been that story, you know, about coming in after a really hard day of working and having nothing to show for it. And then just being there with someone who experienced the same thing has really taught me a lot about the Savior. And that those moments when things are the worst, the Savior's right there being like, yeah, I'm experiencing it with you. I get it. And and that for me has been some of the most profound healing I've experienced. Yeah, I've had similar experiences to that. Um, so moving on with uh, chapter five, which is the short little sort of interlude that Moroni offers here. Um, he's talking about coming forth of the Book of Mormon, it seems, and the three witnesses. This is all uh, the apparent interpretation of what's happening here. Um, and and I think in this context, it's interesting because we have, we have the account of Christ in the New Testament. We have the account of Christ in 3 Nephi. And it's almost like Moroni is telling us this concept of three witnesses by saying, hey, you know, the brother of Jared experienced all these things as well. So he's your third witness, right? Um, but Moroni kind of says it between the lines because he's talking about how he doesn't really have, uh, you know, earlier, I guess, in the late chapters of Mormon, he said, I don't, I don't have the ore to make more plates to write all of this stuff that I'd like to write. But the brother Jared saw it and he experienced it all of it. So take him as your third witness. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but that's what I see. That's what I see the connection between chapter four and five being here. And so then he says, you know, when the record comes forth, the you know the Lord's going to use three witnesses to to uh, testify of it and so forth. So a very interesting sort of closeout to his whole discussion there. Um, where then he finally, either chapter six, we finally actually get uh, more of the story of of the Jaredites. And you think, man, we're almost halfway through the book here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also verse one there, you know, at the very, at the very beginning, we talked about uh, Moroni doing these things from memory. And now I, Moroni, oh, yeah, have written the words which were commanded me according to my memory. And I've told you the things which I have sealed up. So... I'm th I'm thinking that applies here to the first chapters that he's talked about, and so Interesting. A, lot of, hmm. a lot of that comes from that. So, well, very good. Well, Ben, do you have anything else to add? Uh, no, I do not. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you for uh, joining with us this uh, this week. I have loved talking about this. I've, I've been thinking about this all week long and been excited to to sit down with you and talk about it. If you found it valuable, uh, we'd love to hear your feedback and share it with family and friends and uh, put the word out for it. But uh, until next time, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you guys for listening. <laughs>